Let's begin our worship now, and we're singing firstly this evening from Psalm 93. Psalm 93 in the Sing Psalms version. That's on page 123. Tune is Stroudwater. The Lord is king, his throne endures majestic in its height. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength and might. The world is founded firm and sure, removed it cannot be. Your throne is strong and you are God from all eternity. Words that are so familiar to us, I'm sure, regarding God's own sovereignty and kingship and majesty and how our faith in him is founded on the certainty of his own being. Psalm 93, then we'll sing the whole psalm, The Lord is King. The Lord is King, his throne endures majestic Let's unite now in prayer. Let's call upon the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks for the many times your word directs us to your greatness. We marvel how often your word directs us to your greatness as it is directed to the well-being of your people, even in their practical necessities from day to day. We thank you for these great words that have reminded us of your majesty and your glory, and yet also of your concern and interest in your people. And we bless you that you remain with your people in all your might throughout all their history and on into eternity. And we thank you tonight, Lord, that we can take our comfort and that we can take our, uh, our uh, strengthening and confirmation from the many things that you have revealed of yourself in your steadfastness, in your greatness and kindness. We thank you that there is none like you, that you are above all that you have created, and that we are answerable to you. And, O oh Lord, we give thanks that you have revealed to us especially the concern you have in your people so as to provide them with a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. Lord our God, we approach you tonight in his name, for we are assured that as we come in his name and trusting in his name, we will be received by you. We will continue, O Lord, to be received in your presence. We have access into that grace in which we stand in Christ, and we could give thanks for all that is associated with that access tonight. Not only an access by which we come to pray to you, but an access in which we would draw our strength from you. An access to, O Lord, in which we would seek your own teaching of us with regard to that relationship your people have with you. Bless to us, Lord, again your word. We give thanks for your word. We give thanks for its entirety. We give thanks for the variety of teaching within it. We bless you for the various doctrines that are contained in it, that hold, that are held precious by your people down through history. And we thank you, O Lord, that many of these doctrines are foundational to our faith, foundational to the Christian faith itself. We bless you, O Lord, that you have revealed them to us so that we might not only appreciate them, but also hold to them and defend them and come to prize them dearly in the presence of a world and in the presence of every attempt from whatever source to undermine them, to overthrow them, to challenge them. We ask tonight, Lord, your blessing to be with us again as a congregation. We thank you for every evidence of your blessing, for your kindness toward us and for the encouragements you give us as you accompany the gospel uh, with so many signs of your blessing. We thank you, Lord, for all who attended this morning, for all who attended the club and came from that to attend the service this morning, for all the young people, the children who attended, and we pray for them. We pray that all of our efforts, Lord, might prove by your blessing to be of much benefit to us as a congregation, much benefit to us as a as parents and grandparents, but especially to the children themselves. We thank you, Lord, again this evening for all who dedicate of their time and of the gifts that you have given them uh, so as to run such clubs for us and who show their enthusiasm in seeking to uh, involve our children in those activities that present the gospel and that uh, speak of uh, the wonder of Christ Jesus and his salvation. And we pray that you would continue, Lord, to bless all that we seek to do in your name. Uh, we give thanks for the many different talents that we find within the congregation. We know, Lord, how these are harnessed uh, for the good of your cause, and we pray that you continue to bring others to dedicate themselves and to help with the work of the gospel. We thank you that whatever a gift you have given us. We are to use them, uh, Lord, for the glory of your name wherever we are placed. And we thank you that even though we may not be able to be like others, able to speak, able to present the gospel in that verbal way, we thank you for those who quietly go about their own uh, life of dedication to you and especially accompany all that we do with their prayers and with their concern that the Lord would be magnified. So bless us, Lord, we pray this evening, and bless all who belong to us. We commend to you our families, our homes, our relations, and our neighbors. We pray, O Lord, that we may be truly a means of light to the world in which we live, that we may be like that city set on a hill, as your word describes your people. And we ask that you would make us even the more effective in the world in which you have placed us, O oh Lord, deepen our concern, we pray, for that world and its lostness, for those around us who don't care for the gospel, for their own lives, for their soul's well-being. We ask that you would fill us with increased compassion and concern for them. And uh, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would come in these days that belong to our generation and show yourself to be a saving God, the God who is mighty to save, the God who delivers from darkness, from the ways and the ravages of sin. And we ask that that might be the case not only throughout the communities we belong to here in our own localities, but throughout our land, Lord, and throughout the world. Oh, that your kingdom may advance, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that your great name be glorified and exalted, 
that we may see you manifesting your power and your glory once again to the conversion of many uh, to um, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and to come to cry to you out of a concern to be saved. Gracious Lord, will you not hear the cry of your people who faithfully come to seek that blessing by which your Spirit from on high will be poured forth as in other days in the past. And bless, we pray, in all the ways in which we are reminded of these days, not only in your word, but in the history that we have ourselves as a community, uh, where in days gone by the breath of your Spirit came upon us as a people and turned many to righteousness. O Lord, hear us, we pray, in times that are so darkened by the ways of sin, by ungodliness, by a desire only to follow the ways of the world and of the human will. And we ask, O Lord our God, that you would come and manifest your power and your greatness. We pray your blessing on all gatherings of your people tonight. We pray that throughout the world we may have uh, accounts, O Lord, of many being touched by your Spirit and turned into the ways of righteousness. We pray for those who rule over us in government. Lord, our God, be merciful to them. We know that uh, so few of them, all too few, uh, make any public declaration of faith and trust in the Lord, that some even follow other religions which we know are contrary to the gospel and cannot ever bring to human souls the satisfaction that we require and the righteousness that you require. Lord, our God, be, be pleased to bless those who rule over us and come and visit them with your own salvation from on high. And may even during these days to come, as we prepare for the remembering of the entrance of the Lord of glory into human life and into the circumstances of this world, Lord, may these things themselves prove to be a means of giving people room for thought, deliberation and reflection, and thoughts upon their relationship to God, to eternity. I grant your blessing too, we pray, uh, for all who give good counsel to those in government, and for all the agencies and those of our members of Parliament and MSPs who do fear your name and who seek to be faithful to you. O oh Lord, remember them, we pray, and remember their efforts as they seek to speak against measures that we know are intended measures that we know are not in accordance with your will and indeed at many times are contrary to it. Be pleased to encourage them, we pray, and add to their number, both locally and nationally. We ask your blessing to be tonight with those who have personal difficulties and trials and anxieties. We think of those who belong to ourselves as a congregation in particular. We ask too that you would draw near to those whose, whose hearts at this time of year are heavy, through recent bereavement or through loss of loved ones in the past. Lord, we know how, how difficult this time of year can be, uh, more so than many other times, for those who live on their own, for those who feel isolated and lonely, and for those who miss loved ones. Lord, we ask that your own blessed presence might be made known to them, and that they may come to uh, learn that their trust in you more and more is to be a trust that will not be put to shame, but that you will be their God and they will be your people. So draw many to yourself, we pray, at this time. Uh, be pleased to bless those who uh, watch online and participate that way in our services here. We thank you that we receive, Lord, many messages from different parts of the world whereby people tell us of the benefits they receive from gospel services here in this congregation and many others. And we thank you for the encouragement that gives us and for the way, Lord, in which we uh, find it uh, proved to our own hearts that the Lord is God, that he is good, that he is merciful, that he is gracious. And so bless us now as we continue to wait upon you here, hear our prayers and pardon our sins. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to sing again to God's praise. This time we're singing from Psalm 90. Um, Psalm number 90, that's in the Scottish Psalter, and singing verses 13 to 17, that's on page 350, tune this time is Kilmarnock, Psalm, uh, Psalm 90 at verse 
13. Turn yet again to us, O Lord, how long thus shall it be? Let it repent thee now for those that servants are to thee. O with thy tender mercies, Lord, us early satisfy, so we rejoice shall all our days and still be glad in thee. So these verses through to the end of the psalm to God's praise. Turn yet again to us, O Lord, how long this shall it be? Let it repent thee now for those that Now let's turn to read God's Word. Our reading tonight is in the letter to the Hebrews and the first chapter of Hebrews. We're going to have our study in um, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, but in preparation for that, we'll read this chapter in Hebrews, which also has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ in particular. So Hebrews chapter 1, at the beginning, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you 
with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Once again, may the Lord bless to us that reading of his word uh, to his own praise. We'll turn now to sing again, this time in Psalm 45. Psalm 45a. And you'll find that on page 56, verses 1 to 6. As we read in Hebrews chapter 1, words from the psalm are quoted there in respect to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his person and kingship and his throne. And so we'll sing to Chun Loch Broom, verses 1 to 6. A noble theme inspires my heart with verses for the king. My tongue's a skillful writer's pen, composing lines to sing. You far excel the best of men. Your lips are full of grace, for God has blessed you evermore. His light shines on your face. O mighty one, take up your sword and bind it on your thigh. With glorious splendor, clothe yourself and with your majesty. Ride forth in state victoriously for meekness, truth, and right. Let your right hand display your deeds of awesome power and might. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of those who hate the king and all the nations of the earth into subjection bring. Your royal throne, O God, will last throughout eternity. Your kingdom scepter will be one of truth and equity. And these words, of course, speaking of riding forth prosperously, having in his his hand these sharp arrows to pierce the hearts of the enemies of the king. All of that is, of course, uh, full of spiritual meaning for us. Whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's essentially this that we're praying for, that Jesus, in his might and in his majesty, would display his power in the extending of his kingdom and the conversion of people like ourselves Uh, to subjection willingly to himself. So we'll sing verses 1 to 6, A Noble Theme Inspires My Heart. A noble theme inspires my heart With verses for the King My tongue's a skillful writer's composing lines to sing. You've had excel the best of men. Your lips are full of grace. For God. Oh, oh, oh. 
Please turn with me now to Paul's letter to the Galatians and chapter 4. The letter to the Galatians, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 to 7. But we'll read from the beginning of the chapter there at verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is a remarkable combination in these verses, verses 4 to 7 especially, of uh, an emphasis on the Son of God, on Jesus the Son, on the sons of God, those who are adopted to be God's children, God's sons, and on the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus, the Son of God. The Son, the sons, and the Spirit of the Son are all wonderfully combined in this uh, uh, marvelous uh, set of verses. And it reminds us even by that itself that in our Christian faith, one of our uh, most important factors to, to remember is that we uh, have a Trinitarian faith, a faith in which God is presented to us in his word as one God, but three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each of whom is involved in our redemption in their own particular way, and yet not at the expense of the others. It's a wonderful harmonious combination of the persons of the Godhead as one God acting in these ways that Scripture reveals in our redemption, in our salvation. That makes the Christian faith unique. It makes what we have as a basis uh, of our, of our uh, religion, of our faith, unique amongst all the religions and ideologies of the world. And these are things that we have to prize and hold on to very dearly because they form part really of the nucleus or of the very essence of the Christian faith, that God is triune, that the three persons of the Godhead act in their own way and relate to each other in these ways in which the Scripture reveals to us. Now here in chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, Paul is really dealing with the age that led up to the coming of Christ. And it's not easy the way he sometimes speaks of being enslaved and so on. He's talking of that age as a preparatory age, so that in preparing for the coming of Christ, that age of the Old Testament or most of the Old Testament was an age of the law, the law of God particularly, and how during those centuries of being um, being uh, uh, under the instruction of the law and, uh, as he puts it here, um, under the guardianship of the law, if you like, until the time came when the Son of God would come into the world as promised down through the years of the Old Testament. And that's what brings us here to verse 4. Uh, that age leading up to that was dominated by the law. Uh, and now he says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son. And by fullness of the times there, it's not so much talking chronologically, but fullness in the terms of the fullness of the time in God's plan. In God's plan of redemption, in God's plan as he had set out the various aspects of revealing himself as the redeemer of his people, all of these events down through the Old Testament as they were preparatory for this final age of fulfillment, it finally came, uh, the fullness of the time came, the time of fulfillment came, and therefore then Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus came into the world as promised. And I want to just look briefly at uh, these three points that I've mentioned at the beginning there, the Son, the Sons, and the Spirit of the Son, 
as these verses combine them so wonderfully together. See what he's saying, first of all, about the Son. When the fullness of time, or the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his Son. Now, of course, you see from that that the Son is distinguished from God, not because the Son is not God, but elsewhere from the Bible you learn that sometimes when God is mentioned in relation to the Son, it's God the Father that's specifically referred to. And so you take that with you into this kind of verse here, when the fullness of the time had come, God, that's God the Father, sent forth his Son. And it's important to us as well, as we said at the beginning, to retain the Bible's own emphasis on what each of the persons of the Godhead do or have done and are doing in our redemption. That's what brings glory to God, that each of these persons have their own role in our redemption And uh, we don't do justice to that revelation if, for example, we're just going to focus on any one of these persons at the expense of the other two. If we were to just uh, um, spend most of our time thinking of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, or of the Spirit of God, or even of the Father, we need to keep them in the uh, combination and in uh, in the proportion in which their work is revealed to us in the Bible in order to be true to God's own revelation of who he is and what he's about and why all of this is so precious to us. So what he's saying is he sent forth his own son. Being sent forth means to send on a mission, especially sending him forth from himself. God the Father sent him forth. The Son who was the Son from all eternity, the Son who is uh, like the Father, God, but his, his purpose in sending him forth is that he will actually come to redeem his people. God, in the fullness of the time, sent him forth. The, pa- the Father's purpose is to bring about uh, the, the adoption of of uh, saved sinners to himself as his children. And in order to bring that about, he first of all sends his son, his eternal son, into the world to do the work that we know of in the Bible he came to do and accomplished. He sent him forth from himself into the world, and it doesn't leave us at all uh, doubtful as to the method he chose for him coming into the world or being sent into the world, because he says immediately, he sent forth his son born of a woman. Just a few words, but how much is packed into these few words, where the eternal son of God doesn't change from being the eternal son, but he takes something to himself which he never had before. He takes human nature to himself. He takes a true body and a reasonable soul, as our catechism reminds us. And it literally means here, God sent forth his son. He came to be born of a woman. He came into the being, the nature of human nature. He took that to himself. He joined that to himself, to his person as the Son of God. And that's the wonder, really, uh, that we stop over so many times and just try and give our minds, as far as we are able to, that amazing fact that the Son of God, the eternal God, actually took humanity to himself and became human in that sense in which he lived as a human being in this world, in these circumstances that you and I have and as we live in this world, into the world of, of, of history and of sense, and the world of human experience, the world of temptations, the world of pains, the world of all that the Bible describes about him, especially in the Gospels that he confronted and dealt with and experienced. He is born, he is sent forth born of a woman. As the Son of God, he is God divine. But he is also the Son of Mary. He is also the Son of a woman who gave birth to him, who brought him into the world, who nurtured him, who nourished him, who tended to his needs as a baby human child. And that itself should make us wonder that when you look into the Bible's description of that 
birth of Jesus, and she laid him, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. What is she doing? She is actually taking the very person of the Son of God in his human nature and laying him in a manger. There was no room for them in the inn. And you stop over that and you think, well, what is the meaning of Christmas? What do we think about at Christmas? Though it's not only just, of course, at Christmas time. But that's the, that's the story of Christmas. That's the fact of Christmas. That's the wonder of Christmas. That the eternal Son of God came by taking a human nature to be born into this world. Who can understand? The God who upholds the universe and continued to uphold the universe. The Son of God, who is himself the creator of the universe, as much as the Father and the Spirit. And yet there he is. It is him. It is he himself. In that manger in Bethlehem, having come into the world and placed himself deliberately, having been sent forth by the Father, he came of his own volition as well to place himself willingly as a servant of the Father in these conditions of humility and of service. And he did that for the likes of us. What is Christmas to yourself and myself? What is Jesus to yourself and myself? What do you think about when you think about Jesus? Do you just think of a human being who was a remarkable human being, an amazing teacher, who went about doing the things that are described in the Gospels, and who has so much theology around him as you find in the epistles of Paul and of John and of Peter? But do you stop and wonder, at who is this? You you go to the likes of Luke's gospel. We've seen this more than once. You go right through Luke's gospel and you'll come at different stages to find different people asking this question, who is this man? Who is he? We just can't find words to describe, people are saying, or to actually just understand how it is that he is as he is doing, that he's speaking as he's speaking, that he's teaching as he's speaking. Some of them so amazed we're saying, well, and John's gospel has the same. Is not this the carpenter? Is not this Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, the parents we know for ourselves? Is this not who he is? How has he got this wisdom? Where did he get this power from? How has he managed to do all of these miraculous things? Because he's the son of God in our nature, because he is the Messiah. He is the one who came, sent forth by the Father born of a woman and made under the law, born, under, uh, born of a woman, but also born under the law. In other words, as he came into the world, he came to subject himself willingly to live in obedience to the will of the Father and indeed to give obedience to the law of God. And there's another remarkable thing. Who gave the law? Who gave Moses the law? Who stipulated these laws of the Old Testament age that were applicable to the covenant people of God and the moral law that's really applicable to all of human life? Who gave these laws? Who is the lawgiver? He is. He is. And what's he doing here as he comes to be born of a woman? He's come to be born under the law. He came to give perfect obedience to that law. And all the way through every description you find of him in the Bible, that is what you conclude about him. That is what you have to say about him. That's what this Bible says about him. At no stage was he ever disobedient. Did he ever contravene the law? He always kept the law of God most perfectly. Now that was necessary for our salvation, because he is the last Adam, as Paul describes him. Adam, our first parent, the covenant head, as God created him. And as he fell, we fell in him. As he sinned, we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We needed another Adam. We needed another head, another federal covenant head, we needed one who would not fall and yield to the temptations of the devil of the serpent. One who would always be true to the law and could always say 
Where can you find sin in me? But not only that. Yes, he yielded obedience that way to the law, kept the law most perfectly as the last Adam. But when you go back to chapter 3, in being placed under the law, he came willingly to take the penalty of a broken law, the penalty of the law that we broke, the death that we deserved, is what he took to himself. You see what he's saying here in in chapter 3, where you find... uh, These amazing words in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. But he's saying, this is what... uh, he, was, he placed himself willingly. This is what the Father sent him forth into, ultimately sent him forth to die the death of the cross. And the death of the cross is nothing less than the curse of the law. The death which the broken law of God required. The death which yielded satisfaction to God's justice. Without which we were not to be saved, could not be saved. That is what you find. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, taking our place and standing in our place as our substitute. How impossible it is for us to just get into our minds the wonder of that, the amazing fact that the Son of God not only came into this world as a human being and was born of a woman, but born under the law, and born under the law, subjected himself willingly to the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. You see how it's put? He became, he became a curse for us. God's own penalty laid upon him, God's own curse the death which we deserved. The Lord has laid on him, said the prophet Isaiah long ago, the iniquity of us all. Where do you find your predicament dealt with? Where do you find your guilt dealt with as a sinner, as a fallen sinner? Where do you find the fact that you are guilty of breaking the law every time you have a sinful thought? Where do you find an answer to that? Where do you find a solution to that? Where do you find something that's provided for you against that great fact of your sin and your lostness and your guilt? Well, you find it here. That God, instead of sending us forth into a lost eternity as we deserved, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive instead of the curse we deserved that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. Here is Jesus, here is the Son. And he goes on to speak of the sons, because it says, as it goes on, sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see the way that logically is following on from what he said about the Son himself. The Son came, he took the place of his people, he took the law and placed himself under the law. He was obedient to the law, he bore the curse of the law, he rendered restitution to God, he satisfied the justice of God. What is all in aid of? What does it lead to? So that we might receive adoption as sons, to redeem those who are under the law. Now, the word redemption, as you know, is an important theological word, an important word in the sense that uh, it really means literally to buy someone back from slavery. And here we are enslaved as we are to sin, enslaved under uh, the uh, influences of evil and of Satan, as we are in ourselves, and especially as we look at ourselves as as fallen sinners and as God teaches us the power of that sin, 
that we are actually under the dominance of sin. I know it's difficult to accept, but that's the reality God is telling us of in his word. How, does, how is that broken? How is the power of sin broken? How do we come to be released from that bondage, from that terrible constriction under the, uh, the enmeshment of sin as it holds us in its grasp? We come because he was made a curse for us so that we might be redeemed, those who are under the law, bought back to God. That's a commercial term, in a sense, that was used in the days of the apostles for those who were slaves and bought and sold as slaves. Um, you could actually have uh, a slave bought at a cost and brought into your home. But then sometimes, especially in, in well-to-do families, Sometimes, uh, where, there were, where there were no children in the family, sometimes that slave would actually become the, inherit, the heir that would inherit uh, the name and would inherit the, the estate of the person who had initially bought them as a slave. And all of that's packed into the theology of, of this word redeem, because that's what God did. He bought us, and the, the, the price of, of buying us back from, from the grip of sin was what? What was the price? What price, what did it cost to release us, to buy us, to redeem us? Well, doesn't uh, the Bible make that plain many times? You are redeemed, says Peter, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. It cost the death of Christ. God sent forth his Son to that purpose, to that end, among many other things, that he would come to redeem those who are under the law, that he would pay the price of his own life in order to bring us back to God. How precious is that to you tonight? Where is there anything else more amazing than that in your experience? That the Son of God came into this world to rescue you, and in coming to rescue that he did it by placing himself under the law, not only becoming human, but becoming to be regarded as if he were the biggest sinner ever, bearing the curse and being made the curse, so that he might redeem us, bring us back to God, and ultimately become children of God. That he might redeem us so that we might be adopted. You see, the redemption leads instantly to that we might receive adoption as sons. And when you receive something, in that sense from God, it's a free gift. You didn't buy your adoption, neither did I. You didn't buy your way into being children and sons of God. You didn't actually make an arrangement with God yourself, whereby by your own contribution or the quality of our own contribution, by our own obedience, by the, the quality of the life that we lived, nothing like that, that you actually somehow or other bought or purchased that place in the presence of God by which he regarded you now as acceptable and righteous. It took the blood of Christ. It took the death of the cross. And the death of the cross is the means through which we are redeemed. And then as redeemed we receive an aspect of grace, the adoption of sons, the adoption of sons made children, sons of God. You see, the purpose of redemption, in a sense in this way, is adoption. The purpose behind redeeming us, bringing us back to God, is not just to end our enslavement, it's not just so that we would no longer be slaves. It goes much further than that, so that we would be made sons. You can imagine in some way, in your own mind at least, in my own mind, that uh, it might be sufficient that God would actually do something to redeem us, to, to take us back from the enslavement of our sins and leave it at that. But that's not enough for God. Because we were created by God in the beginning to be in perfect fellowship with him, to have his satisfaction in us and ours in him. And you only have that when you're adopted and made into sons of God. By his grace, in his favor, brought back to be 
what we were intended to be, to be sons of God, children of our Heavenly Father. And you see, that's why he says here, it's through God. Redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And uh, you have that through God himself. So there's the Son, and there's the sons, and there's the Spirit of his Son. And that's another dimension that he now adds to it. Let's read it again from verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons. You see, he's now thinking of them as adopted children of God, by his grace. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Interesting, the same word is used of the Spirit there, as was used of the Son in verse 4. God sent forth the Son. Now he's saying, because you are Son, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. And again, there's a very important connection there. It's not saying, um, it's not saying that uh, our adoption uh, or, or sending forth the Spirit is in order that he would actually make us sons of God. It's the other way around. It's because God's people, God's children, because the redeemed in Christ are already sons of God, that then he says he sent forth his Spirit into their hearts. It's the fact of their adoption that leads to the fact of sending forth the Spirit into their hearts. It's all bound up, of course, in the one great package of salvation. But that's the reality of being a Christian. The reality of being saved reality of having Christ as your Redeemer, the reality of knowing him, and knowing him in such a precious way as the one who has redeemed you, and indeed here, knowing your Father as well, because it's the Father that's really in mind all the way through here. He sent forth his Son. He sent forth his Son to redeem those who were born, and because you are sons, God the Father has sent forth his Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, into your hearts. That's what qualifies, if you like, to receive the Spirit of God. Uh, qualifies in the sense in which they are, on the basis of their adoption, he has sent forth the Spirit into their hearts. Now, there's a lot of theology here, I know that. And uh, the young folks that are here tonight might be thinking, well, what is, what is all this about? Why do, we, why do we bother going into all that uh, really heavy stuff? What's the importance of it? Surely, I can be a Christian without actually uh, giving myself the time and the effort to, to know these things. Well, of course you can, but it's in the Bible for this particular reason, that you will know Christ and know him better as your life goes on. And even as children, young children, it's important for you that you actually come to the Bible and try and understand bit by bit these great teachings of the Bible, to understand that the Son of God, who was God from all eternity, he came into this world in Jesus, as Jesus. He was born of Mary. He lived a human life. He was tempted, but never sinned. He died the death of the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended then to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God. So we read in Hebrews chapter 1. And he's coming back to this world as the judge. All of these things are a great truths about Jesus that you and I need to know. And as part of that, as we read here, God in a special way, on the basis of all that Jesus has done already, he makes us his sons, and because we are his sons, he then gives us the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And through that, we come to cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a word really that means the same as Father in a very affectionate sense. Some people would translate it, Father, my dear Father. It's a very, uh, a very close term, a very warm term. Uh, it's not to do with anything like a distant God or anything like that. If there's anything in the Bible that really shows us that God is not distant to his people or holds his people at a distance from him, it's the word Father. Our Father. 
who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's the Father who sent forth the Spirit of his Son. Interesting, we haven't got time really to go into that, but the Holy Spirit here is called the Spirit of his Son because his Son is as much involved in uh, how the Spirit comes into the experience of his people. He's the Spirit of his Son as he is the Spirit of the Father. He's a servant of the Son and of the Father in that sense that uh, he comes to minister to God's people as sent forth by uh, the Father into their hearts. And so you are no longer, he says, a slave but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. What a world of difference, friends, there is between the way we're born into this world as slaves of sin and what we come to be by God's grace and through the Spirit of God and through his regenerating grace in our lives, we're turned not only just to be freed from the slavery of sin, but made sons of God, part of his family, his redeemed family. You are no longer a slave, but a son. But he doesn't leave it at that. And a son, if a son, then an heir through God. It's all from God. And what is an heir? An heir is someone who has an inheritance. An inheritance, even in the ordinary sense, comes to us, most often at least, by the death of someone who has willed an estate to us in their will. We inherit because somebody has passed things on to us. And once they die, they become ours. And here is the great inheritance of eternal life that has been secured for God's children through the death, resurrection, all that Christ has done for them. So that when you take all these verses with you, what do they amount to? Why is all this important in practice? It's not just theology to, to fill our minds with theological principles and theological points so that we can actually try and understand them and debate them and so on. It's all of that. But every single point of theology has a practical purpose. Even the greatest theology in the Bible, the theology of the person of God's Son, the theology of the Father, the theology of redemption, it all has a personal, practical bearing on our lives. What is it? Well, many things, but it's this, for tonight at least. What does it mean in practice? It means that we need to live openly, professedly, earnestly, honestly, seriously as God's children in this world. That's our great privilege. To live for him. To live for our Father. To show to the world who our Father is as much as who our Savior Jesus is. And to show to the world what it means to us to be the children of this Father. This world out there needs stability like we do ourselves. That world out there needs comfort like we do ourselves. Needs direction. Needs hope. Where is that going to come from? Where will they find it? Well, we direct them to the Father. We direct them to the one who sent his Son into the world. And we say, this is where hope really is found. Securely, everlastingly. A hope that you can prize for time and for eternity. And then as you go to chapter 6, let's leave the final words with Paul himself in verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, Paul is saying, here is the practical expression of our sonship, that we do good to everyone as much as we have opportunity to do, and especially to God's own people. Because that's where our sonship and our affection for Father and our esteem for the Son, the Son by the sons, through the Spirit of the Son, 
making known how very precious indeed it is to be saved. Are you that tonight? Are you amongst the redeemed? Do you call God your Father every day? Do you come to him and say, Lord, my Father, you are so precious to me because of what you've done through your Son, because of your grace through which I come to be adopted and received into the family of God. Is he your Father to whom you go for advice, whose counsel you value, whose love you cannot comprehend and yet you esteem more than your necessary food? Is he your Father? Have you turned to him? Are you still without him? Are you still outside of those who have come to trust in Christ and therefore have come to know the wonder of being found in him and accepted by God as his children? Let's pray. Lord, our God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for all that your fatherhood means to your people. And we thank you especially for all that is behind the sending of your own Son into this world. You sent him forth into this world of darkness and pain, of temptation and of sorrow, and in his case beyond what we can measure. Lord, we thank you for all that you accomplished, for all that you will yet accomplish in the finalizing of your people's salvation in glory. And we thank you for the hope that you bring into our experience when we come to rest upon Jesus and when we come to know him as one who is worthy to be known and one who will always be faithful to his people. Bless us then, we pray, and bless the fellowship now afterwards. Be with them there as they meet together. And in all of these things, accept our praise. Cleanse us and wash us from our sins. For Jesus' sake, amen. We sing now in conclusion in Psalm 118. Psalm 118, and this time it's in the Scottish Psalter, from verse 24 to verse 29. This is the day God made, in it will joy triumphantly. Save now, I pray thee, Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And the day that's mentioned there is not only the Lord's day, though you can apply it to that, it's especially the day of God's salvation, the day of Christ, the day of redemption, in which God's people can joy triumphantly. And then it says, Blessed is he in God's great name that cometh us to save. Verses 24 to 29, Tunis Colesill, this is the day God made. This is the day God made
I'll go to the door to my right this evening after the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.